jump in. As you guys know, we're studying the book of Hebrews, and we are talking about how Jesus is better than everything. Each week, we talk about how the Word of God is showing us what Jesus is, who He is, what He's done, um, and how it changes everything for us. And as Jason mentioned earlier, the theme for tonight is that Jesus is our atonement. I know that sounds like a big, scary uh, Bible word, but it will make sense once we jump in. Now, last week, we talked about temples in the Old Testament, tabernacle, all kinds of things that were were just kind of over our head a little bit. At least it felt that way. Hopefully by the end of last week, um, it was making some sense. But it was, it, it was stuff that almost makes you want to just bypass and say, yeah, I'm reading this, um, something about a tabernacle and uh, all kinds of stuff inside of it, and you just want to move past it. And we, we saw how it actually makes an impact in how we understand the gospel today. It's not so confusing, it just sounds a little bit crazy. Like this, is, this is one of those nights where you dig into the Word of God and it's all about death and blood and blood in the Old Testament and blood on Jesus and all kinds of blood. And, and if you're not familiar with the gospel, with the faith, then it will definitely sound crazy. If you are familiar with the gospel, it'll, it'll stand, still sound crazy, it's just a good kind of crazy um, so we're going to jump into that, but what I want to do, uh, I don't want to just talk about the atonement, but I want uh, to draw the parallel to the Lord's Supper, mostly for the sake of uh, that this tonight, nobody, nobody, this passage that we're in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, finishing out the chapter, this isn't one of those passages that people, when, they, when they're partaking in the Lord's Supper, they're like, oh, and you know, Hebrews chapter 9, and they just rifle off, but this is, this is the Lord's Supper. What we're talking about tonight is the reason for the Lord's Supper, and since we're going to be doing it so much here on Sundays, I want you to be thinking about the Lord's Supper. Me and Jason were just talking the other day about uh, how when we visited churches in the past, we always remember when they take the Lord's Supper. Because it just has, it's just, it's just special, uh, just partaking in that way, being a part of the worship in that way, remembering what Jesus did, his death, uh, of course the bread, the, the blood representing the new covenant, like it's a weighty thing, it's important stuff. Um, I, I remember listening to a preacher one time, Craig Groeschel, he had a Methodist background and he was saying that the first time he gave a sermon and actually led a worship service in this Methodist church uh, that he was a part of, he said that he preached his first sermon and he had dry mouth like crazy by the end of it. Uh, he was nervous, he was anxious, he didn't have water with him. But in that denomination, whoever preaches, at least in this case, was to then give the Lord's Supper afterwards. And so this is, this is important for someone who has that background. Like, they're really, this is special stuff. And he said that he, uh, he was explaining what it all meant, and he took the bread. And he said as he was taking the bread, because he had dry mouth, he started choking and so people didn't know exactly what was happening. And he said as he was choking, the only thing he could think was to, to take a drink. So he took the cup, he took the blood, and he said he just chugged it. And, it was, of course, it was real wine in that <laughs> denomination. And he said it looked, it looked horrible, it looked like a vampire Christian there. But he was making a joke of it. I mean, it's, just, it's a weighty thing, and it's special, and we remember when we do it. So tonight, as we walk through this, I want you to be thinking. Like, I don't know what was going through your mind Sunday when you took the Lord's Supper. I got to think for some of us, we take it and we're just like, uh, I'm just going to be silent for a little bit and then I'll take it when everyone else does because I don't really know exactly what to do. Or you just get in the habit of not really talking to God or thinking much about it. I mean, I don't know what it is like for you. But I want you to think about what, what, what's going through your mind. Why is it special when you take the Lord's Supper? And I hope that this upcoming Sunday and the weeks to follow uh, will be that much more special 
based on what we hear tonight. So if you've got a Bible, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15, we're going to walk through the rest of this book today. So, excuse me, this chapter today, that'd be a long night of Bible study, wouldn't it be? Man, see now, now my long sermons don't seem so bad when that was what it could be, right? Okay, so Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, we'll park on something right after this. It says, Therefore, he, that's being Jesus, is mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. All right, let's park here a little bit. First thing we see is that God's will is a will. We're talking about two different wills here. We always talk about God's will in the church, right? What's God's will for this? But God actually has like a a real legal end-of-life will that we hear about here with Jesus. I don't know how many of you guys know about this will, but we don't think of God's gospel to us as a will. But it is. Most of us are familiar with with an end-of-life will, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but we have a whole uh, different perspective of the gospel when we see that it's a will. Now, let's walk through this like we always do. Um, Therefore, we see that Jesus is the mediator, so he is the one putting this together from man to God, this gospel. Jesus is the one who gives us access to this new covenant. You guys know when we're talking about new covenant, remember Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, we're talking about uh, a reversal of essentially the Old Testament, a mosaic law of the covenant. It was an external law given to uh, the Israelites, so it was something that, that was presented to them so that they can obey and follow, and their blessings and curses uh, with God were dependent on whether they could follow this law or not. And so what that law ended up doing was making them feel guilty a lot and realizing they can't be perfect, and they need a Savior. And that was the point of the law. And so they were excited when Jesus comes around, right? And so so this new covenant is now a little bit of a reversal in that God puts his spirit, not just the letter of the law, the spirit of the law inside of those who believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Okay, so now we have a desire to follow him. Now we want to obey his commands. Now, and now as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's not that we have less rules, so to speak, but we have a, not only a desire to follow him, we have the spirit of the law guiding us and directing us on a daily basis. <clears throat> Essentially, the new covenant is God's arrangement between mankind and himself. It is through Jesus that we're justified. I know these are big churchy words, justified and sanctified. We can be in the presence of God. We have the forgiveness of sins. We are born again spiritually. It's a different arrangement than what we had in the Old Testament. It's a big deal. And it says that who are called. So we're talking about Christians. You want to know who's called? You want to know who the elect are? those who believe. (laughs) I don't know who the elect are uh, in this room other than those who believe. And and so those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We'll talk more about that in a second. Since a death has occurred that redeems. So to redeem means that something has been purchased. So something has been uh, made valuable again. And we see through scripture that we were all captives. We were held captive and we were prisoners. We were sin uh, slaves to sin. And so 
Jesus in Revelation 1, it says that he had the keys to Hades and he set the captives free. And so when we talk about redeeming, we're talking about what Jesus did on the cross. It actually purchases our freedom so that we don't have to be slaves to sin. And of course, the punishment for it. The transgressions committed under the first covenant. So those people under the law, they knew they needed a new covenant. And Jesus is the savior for that. So then verses 16 and 17 bring up this idea of a will. Now here's the deal. There, when you see the word covenant and you see the word will, depending on your translation, there's a Greek word, diathekes. And this Greek word generally can be translated just covenant. But in this case, it's actually translated will. Now, I know it just sounds like semantics. It just sounds like a play on words, but it's actually incredibly important. Why in the world would God say that this new covenant is actually a will? And we're talking about like a legal end-of-life will. What does that say about this new covenant? What does that say about God? And you might think, well, it doesn't say much. Who cares? But it actually does because it shows how this covenant is completely different than all the past covenants. Completely different. So let me just give you, uh, let, me, let me give you quick, five quick reasons why God uses the word will here through his word and not just calling it a covenant. Number one, it shows the finality of it. You ever wonder to yourself, okay, we got all these covenants in the Old Testament. I mean, way back with even Noah and the flood and God's not going to flood the world the same way. And then you got Abraham and you got one with David, but oh, back up. You got one with Moses, lots of covenants, okay? Covenant, covenant, covenant. Now we got this new covenant. You ever think to yourself, is there going to be any more covenants? Like, are we done with covenants? And so when God says, my covenant, my new covenant is actually a will, it's, it's Jesus' end of life uh, will, he's showing the finality of this covenant compared to the other ones. Like, you don't have to look for another covenant. This is it. This, this is what it was all leading up to, is this new covenant. Number two, it was ushered in by death. So we're going to see that the other, uh, the main covenant in the Old Testament that we're referring to is the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, okay? And that was ushered in with blood, but this covenant was ushered in in a distinct way. It was ushered in by the death of Jesus. Like you can have God on a mountain with Moses, here's some law, here's the covenant. Like it can be given that way. Moses didn't die in that moment. His face gl- was glowing a little bit, but like there, there was no death in the sense that now Jesus ushering a new covenant, he had to die in order for us to have this new covenant. Like we can't get around it. We can't be like, yeah, I got this new covenant. It's awesome. But Jesus didn't have to die. No death, no new covenant. So that's why it's a will. It's an end-of-life deal. It's a little bit different. The third one is that there's an inheritance involved. So we hear about blessings that come with covenants. There's an inheritance that is given to somebody. Who do you think that somebody is? Hopefully it's us. It would be for Christians, those who believe. And then fourth, it's non-negotiable. So uh, in the Old Testament covenants, we talked about the two different kinds of covenants in the past, how some of them were conditional, some of them were unconditional. But this one, this new covenant, it's a will because it's non-negotiable. He, before his death, he chose, he knew what was going to happen, and he chose for certain blessings for the inheritance to come to those who would believe. He just chose it. Like, it don't matter what mankind wanted. God just like, this is how it's going to be. This is my will. And then the fifth one is that this was determined or written in eternity. 
meaning this was done in advance. He knew this. You go back and look at Genesis 3. You, you look at the fall of mankind from the very beginning. God knew even before that, before the heavens and earth, he knew what his son was going to do to redeem all of mankind. This wasn't just to get us to the next covenant. This was planned in advance. It was sealed. It was set in stone. And it's just the way that all of history was leading up to this new covenant. It's important. But let's talk about, cov- or let's talk about a will. You guys know uh, here on earth, wills can be tricky. How many of you have been involved in some way, shape, or form with somebody's will? Maybe you've been an executor for a will. My mom, she's placed kind of that role in our family where grandparents, everyone just kind of trusts her to be the one to, to make sure that things get settled, the states get settled, all that kind of stuff. Wills are weird. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to say they're, they're super weird, but like on earth, it gets tricky because humans have all kinds of motivations and we have all kinds of weird, uh, you know, intentions. And so it's awkward because it makes you do two things. It's two kinds of awkward, really, on earth. The first one is, if you're going to deal with somebody's will, you kind of have to come face to face with death. Like, you got a loved one who, who has a will, and they talk to you about that will, and, and you, you have to talk about their death. And that's not fun on earth, because that means that's the end of life. So it's awkward. Even if, you, even if someone died and then some lawyer comes to you and says, yeah, here's some things that are going to happen from their will, like it still makes you have to deal with their death. It's awkward. The flip side of that is, and hopefully you haven't been in this position, but some of you have, where people care so much about the will that they don't even care about the death. That's where it gets really sticky. That's where it gets really weird. Is it's like, oh, we were a family. I didn't think we were that crazy. Brothers and sisters, we all get along. It's all good. It's wonderful. And then mom or dad dies, and all of a sudden we fight like we hated each other from day one. It's almost like we care more about what we're getting out of this thing than the one who died. And so on earth, we have a hard time understanding these wills. I remember just a a couple months ago uh, going up to my mom and dad's house and my aunt was there and she she loves uh, sentimental things. And I got to be careful here. I think there's differences in how generations look at different parts of inheritance. Like, um, let's just take furniture for example. I don't know that millennials, and, I, and this is all, I, I hate to generalize it, I don't know that millennials like, l- love the idea of inheriting a ton of their parent or grandparents' furniture. Am I right? Like, it, it, just, it, just, it doesn't seem quite to hold the value that it used to. But like my mom's generation and then my grandparents' generation, the idea of passing down furniture and keeping things in the family, like that's a big deal. So I love my parents and, and their house, but like we take little Silas up there, we're going to stay the weekend, and we got this room, it was my old bedroom, and it's really not that big. And it seems like every time I, I go there, it gets smaller as my, my body gets bigger. And, and so as I, as I look in this room, like <laughs> it once had just a few pieces of furniture, and every time I go back now, it's got like more and more and more furniture. It's like the collection of people who have died in the community like here's all their stuff it's like the storage for for the dead and i'm just like why do we have all of this stuff and my aunt was saying you know you guys are going to get this and i said "Uh, i don't want to speak for all the kids but let me speak for all of them i saying, we don't want this we don't really want 
all of your stuff. We don't want to just have, see, my generation watches hoarders. And so we don't want, we don't want that. And we got into it, and it got awkward. And it was this generational kind of deal where it was like, you know what? We just look at wills and, and, and inheritance differently than people did before. And it ended with me saying, we don't want it. And she's like, fine, we ain't giving it. And it's just awkward. It's awkward talking about it long before we have to talk about it. But with Jesus, it's completely different. Because what he's giving, he chose to do it. And what he's giving is something we all desperately want. Matter of fact, not only do we all want it, we can't have it without him. So it's a perfect, beautiful, holy will that's different than anything we've experienced here on earth. And not only that, but it is beautiful in the sense that dealing with wills on earth, I know I'm parking here for a while, but this is important, dealing with wills on earth, it almost in a way, it's almost like putting a stamp to be able, or maybe even giving a sign that like you can move on from someone's death. Like as you walk through it and, and things are distributed, like you can walk on. But the gospel is different. The gospel is different. Because your death and my death might seem like the end of things here on earth, but Jesus' death and then his resurrection means that like that's the beginning of life. And it's amazing. And so this will that we're talking about, actually, it, 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 instead of like dealing with, oh, there's inheritance and now we have to kind of put a stamp and, and move on from the death. No, like the inheritance is that we get to ponder on the death. The inheritance is that we get to focus on the death. That's completely unlike, this heavenly will is completely different than what we experience here on earth. It's a completely different thing, and it's beautiful. I'm telling you this. I'm telling you, when we take the Lord's Supper and we break that bread, we're pondering on a death that gives eternal life. We're pondering on a death that I'm telling you what, listen to me, this might be the, the best thing you get all night because this is the one thing that rocks my world over and over and over. For believers, I don't care what you're facing, what you're struggling with, fears, insecurities, I don't care what it is, knowing that 2,000 years ago on a cross and three days later coming out of that grave, Jesus beat up and conquered everything you and I face, everything that stands in front of us and opposes the glory of God, I'm telling you, Whatever it is, if you put it underneath the gospel and you say, how does the death and resurrection of Jesus change this fear, change the way I should see this insecurity, change this circumstance, I'm telling you what, you will go to depths in the gospel that you never even knew were possible. If you seek out how Jesus' death and resurrection changes the way you view things, you're going to see life transformation that will blow you away. This will is amazing. It's amazing. Let's move on. Verses 18 through 22, the author says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So now we're getting into a bunch of blood talk. It's going to get fun. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Could you picture being sprinkled with blood? Sounds fun. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's a powerful statement. Second thing we see, 
is that blood seals the deal. It's a weird text. You might as well have a weird point there. Blood seals the deal. I mean, picture all this blood talk and this old covenant. I mean, the seriousness that would have been uh, just overwhelming the people when everything's getting sprinkled with blood, the blood of animals. Could you picture the people lining up and Moses is just, just making it rain with cow blood? Like, what would that have been like? That would have been gross. It would have caught your attention. And it would have made you think, maybe the reason that this whole sprinkling of blood thing is that maybe like this whole sin thing is super serious. Because this isn't exactly what I pictured doing on a Sunday afternoon or whenever it happened. Getting doused in blood. Some of you are laughing. I don't know what's so funny about this. You're lucky we don't do a reenactment or something just for fun. So let's talk about this blood stuff. Why, why in the world? Why does God even associate um, blood with anything, with forgiveness of sins, with anything? Okay, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I'm going to paraphrase just a smidgen here. But it says this, that all creatures, all creatures have life by their blood. So the life of a creature is in the blood. The Jewish people understood that like the core of life in an animal, in a human, is blood. You ain't got no blood, you don't have no life. So we understand, that, okay, this means life. You even see it all throughout Scripture. Even in Acts chapter 15 in the early church, they're trying to decide what do we do with, with Gentiles and Jews and the Old Testament law and all that stuff. Like we have this freedom in Jesus, but man, the Jews and Gentiles were fighting about, well, hey, look, they go do this stuff and that stuff, and that's against our law. What do we do? So the, all the apostles, they gather at the council in Jerusalem in the late AD 40s, and they have to decide what, what restrictions do we put. And they're just like, ah, uh, and this seems totally random in Acts 15, but they say, Let's just write them a letter back that says, hmm, stay away from sexual immorality. That's a good one. Um, you know, meat, strangle, meat that comes from strangled animals. And, oh, yeah, stay away from blood. Just like, what? Those were the three things you told them to stay away from. Like, it's random. But that shows how incredibly important, like, blood was in their culture and ceremonially. And just, I mean, it played a huge role. You didn't touch blood uh, that you weren't supposed to touch and, and blood that was good. It purified things. It was just a monster symbol. It was a monster symbol. Why was it a symbol? Well, if it represents life and sin, the wages of sin is death, the reason blood covers sins is because it shows someone has to die for sin. So it sounds crazy, but it's actually pretty simple. Plus, not to mention, I mean, let's be honest, God could have done this in a million ways. The way he set it up, he could have, he could have you know, I know <laughs> he could have opened up the heavens and be like, all right, it's been a whole bunch of years, and I'm kind of tired of dealing with you guys from the Old Testament stuff. Like, I'm just going to call a truce, and y'all, you're good. You can come into my presence. Things are fine. Let's just forget about it. Something will happen. We'll slaughter a thousand cows. It'll be all right. Let's just end the sacrificial system. Could have done it that way. We'd have been like, yeah, okay. 
He could have done it a million different ways. But from the very beginning, knowing that mankind would understand like life through blood, he says, I'm going to show my love to them. One day I'm going to show my love to them in such an intimate, amazing, mind-blowing way that like no human being, I don't care what culture, I don't care what country, no human being, if they hear about my son pouring out his blood on the cross, none of them will be able to justify a love like that unless it comes from me. Like nobody can show love more powerful than that. All of a sudden, blood makes a lot more sense. And so you and I see that the law and the old covenant was all, it, it, was, it was all brought into play with blood sprinkled over everything. And so you and I, we stand or have access to the presence of God by Jesus' blood covering us. When you sing those songs about nothing but the blood, you ever sing that song? Sounds weird at first, but theologically, it's a huge deal. It's by the blood of Jesus that you and I have access to God because we can stand in front of him holy because of Jesus' blood poured out on us. So when you drink that little grape juice this Sunday, you start thinking about, what is this blood, new covenant? picture a savior being pierced in the side covering that soldier beneath him and understanding that might have seemed gross to one or two in the crowd but all of humanity whether they know it or not is begging to be covered by that blood and by faith I get to be covered by it all of a sudden it ain't so gross certainly shows the seriousness of sin. The more we lack understanding in the power of the blood, the more we lack understanding in the seriousness of sin. So, this fancy word we call atonement is essentially Jesus' blood covering us, making us pure, making us holy so that we can access God. When you hear of atoning, it's cleansing. It's, it's cleaning us. It's atonement. I remember when, um, I mean, many of you know, when I was in the fourth grade, had a fairly traumatic experience, was embarrassed in front of a bunch of people, messed up my little mind, and I developed this anxiety disorder where I just hated being around folks. I couldn't get on a bus uh, to go to school. I was just scared of being embarrassed all the time, and I thought that just staying out of public um, was probably the best thing for me. So a lot of years of, of struggles ahead, and uh, by the time I was 19, I remember my dad saying, you can either go on disability for the rest of your life or we can do something radical. And at that time, we started looking at the Mayo Clinic up in Rochester, Minnesota. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the facilities we have in America, but usually that's top two or three in the nation. Um, there's one, there's, uh, um, yeah, there's several good facilities, but Mayo Clinic is, is top of the line. So I went up to the main campus three times in a year and a half period. Three times I spent... Uh, with special, with a team of doctors saying, we're going to just focus on you. And every time I, I went and left, like it just got a little more hopeless. Um, but I remember I came back the third time, spent three weeks up there, and they're just like, we're going to retrain your brain. We're going to do everything we can. And I, I remember... 
when I was up there, uh, just being in awe of the facilities. If Rochester, if you've been to Rochester, Minnesota, it's 90, 100,000 people, but the Mayo Clinic buildings are like 20 stories tall, and they're immaculate, and they have literally the best of the best. I mean, entire monster buildings dedicated to different types of cancer, different, I mean, it's just, it is the best of the best, and there's a, there's an underground uh, subway system, there's like a whole mall full of restaurants, like, I mean, when you're in the Mayo Clinic world, you're in a place that nobody else gets to be. And it's so weird because you're in it and it's spotless. And you're walking around, there's someone playing a grand piano. The piano's spotless, everything's shining off of it. And like the music's beautiful and it's filling all these, the, this open space. And, and just there's like nothing on the ground. You're just like, this place is immaculate. And then you look around and you see people without hair. You see people in wheelchairs. And you see a bunch of people at the end of life. And that's why they're at the Mayo Clinic. It's because this is the last option. And it dawned on me, this place is amazing, but the only reason I get access to the best doctors in the world is because I'm as sick as anyone else. Like, I'm, I'm jacked up. Like, that's what gives me access. And that might make sense on earth. And on one hand, it might seem cruel to look at heaven and the presence of God and think, the more jacked up you are, shouldn't that get you brownie points with God? But it doesn't work that way. And the blood of Jesus is what gives us access, just perfection from him. Now the beautiful part is it covers everyone, no matter how jacked up you are. And you have access to a whole other place whole different state. Atonement. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is powerful stuff. Third thing we see is Jesus makes heaven holy. Man, you, you got to be the cat's meow. You got to be the cat's meow if the Bible's going to say, you know what? On earth they purified the tabernacle, the temple, all that stuff by blood, but heaven is purified by the blood of Jesus. I, I don't know too many people who can qualify to make heaven holy. And you say, well, why would heaven even need to be holy, right? Like, isn't it holy already? Even though we see there's going to be a new heaven, new earth, things are going to change in the future. But why, why in the world would heaven even need to be purified? The sanctuary, remember, we're, we're talking about um, how on Mount Sinai, the things, and the instructions that Moses received for the earthly tabernacle, they were copies of heavenly ones, all right? A lot of people don't think about that, but that, that's why intricate design on these things, and we're going to do it this way, and you're going to do it that way, and cubits and all these things, because God's saying this represents something else that exists, and it's heavenly. 
And it's saying, okay, so priests did things in a certain way to purify those and consecrate these things on earth, but Jesus purifies heaven. Why in the world would it need to be purified? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with God not being holy or heaven somehow being a nasty place. It just has to do with our relationship to him as sinners. Jesus covers us by blood, but he covers heaven. He covers the tabernacle there. He, he covers everything by his blood. It purifies the whole nine yards so that there is no doubt in anyone's mind when you stand before God, everything is purified in order for you to be there. And it's all because of Jesus. I remember when I was in jail, 19 years old, Manhattan, Kansas, I was sitting in a jail cell, and as the weeks passed on over this two-month period, um, the idea of being in jail, like, I, I got used to it. At first, you're just like, really? How did I end up here? And then you just kind of get used to it. Once a week, for 30 minutes on Sunday afternoon, they would let visitors come see you. And you could never have more than six people total the entire time you, you were there. You could never have more than six people total. And, and, but they all had to come in one at a time over a 30-minute period. And you didn't know if you were going to have people come at all. A lot of guys would never have anyone come visit them. And I remember as Sunday afternoon would come roll around, I, I would always man, take a shower and I would just get as clean as I could. And it just felt so horrible because I knew people from the outside were coming in. And like they were going to see my life in here. And I remember looking in front of the mirror, my, my cheeks were red from the hot shower, and I just remember thinking to myself, like, there's just no way I can make this look good. I'm, I'm wearing a big, baggy, orange jumpsuit thing. I'm in jail. <laughs> it's just, it just is embarrassing. And I remember going out one day, uh, and someone came to visit me, and I remember it was awesome because they were here, and it was like, all of a sudden, for at least 30 minutes, like, you guys make it, make it a little bit better. And I remember looking over, and this is back in the day um, uh, when K-State basketball wasn't that great. I remember seeing the K-State men's basketball coach visiting one of the players. Now, I'm a K-State fan, so this, doesn't, this grieves me to say, but, like, that was the case. And I remember thinking to myself, what's he doing here? And then thinking, like, this basketball player was here. And I was a young punk. I looked up to these guys. And I remember thinking, like, for a split second, this isn't so bad. Like, a K-State coach, when am I going to hang out with him? Never, unless I go to jail. We're hanging out together. And there's a basketball player? Better than going to college. This is great. <laughs> for a split second, it didn't seem so bad, but you want to know what? In a few minutes, they all left. And I went back to a jail cell, and I was reminded, jail is jail, and it stinks. And after Moses throws all this blood around, and he consecrates this tabernacle, and in the future when the temples are consecrated, guess what? Blood can cover everything from those calves, from those goats, from whatever, but it all dries up. It doesn't just stay bloody, thank God, forever. Like, you get it sprinkled on you, you're probably going to take a shower at some point. It's all so temporary on earth. And so you see these earthly patterns have these temporary blessings, these, this temporary purification, but the heavenly one is sealed for eternity by Jesus' blood. It's not going to just dry up, like it's metaphorically covering us forever. And it doesn't change. It's completely different. 
Are, are you guys, are we, are we starting to see the differences? I know Hebrews is so theologically deep. It's awesome. But are, are we seeing these patterns of this old covenant, this new covenant? Are you seeing, uh, you know, the priests and how they, they functioned in the tabernacle and temple, that they would have repeated sacrifices? But Jesus has one sacrifice. Why? Because he's perfect. This, I mean, this passage has so much packed into it. It says that he, he died once and for all. He doesn't need to die over and over and over and over and over. Which means every time you fall short of God and you sin, you can't re-crucify him. You can metaphorically, but he ain't going back to the cross. It's one sacrifice that covers all. The, the old covenant, the priests would, would take the blood of animals. It's not even their own blood. They were having to atone for their own sins. Jesus, it's his own perfect blood. The Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant, they would cover sin. Jesus not only covers sin now, but he, he says that he puts sin away, meaning you don't have to be in bondage to sin. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. It's not just covered. And in the Old Testament, this is all great and wonderful, but guess what? Most of the known world is not participating in the sacrificial system. It's for Israel and Israel alone. And you as a Gentile, guess what? Every single person in this room, do we understand? As much as we're talking about the Old Testament and priests and sacrificial, it really don't matter to most of us. Because if this was 2,500 years ago, we would be Gentiles who would be looking at the Israelites like, you guys are weird. We follow our own gods. Like, we're all Gentiles. I'm guessing most of us are Gentiles. Now, you can be a proselyte, which means that you go and, and you kind of get adopted into the Israel world. But it was for Israel, and Jesus dies for all of us. It's a new covenant, and it changes everything. And so now let me offend you. Let me be sensitive. This is why on earth, when we talk about different religions, when we talk about those who still consider themselves Christians, but have a priest, that it's not okay. It's not okay at all. It's not harmless. But it's stealing glory from God. And it's deceiving those under the priest. And there's some probably even in this room as believers, maybe you didn't come from a background that had a priest. But there's probably some in this room that kind of view a priest and a pastor as the same thing. One of us is telling you how we can help you have access to God. The other one is pointing to Jesus, the only one who can give anyone access to God. One is saying, hey, you come to me, I can help atone all I'll do this for you. The other one is saying, there's a great shepherd greater than me or anyone in this field, and we're just going to point you to him. A priest and a pastor are so far different, it's not even funny. Many of you have been listening to this series for the several months we've been in Hebrews. And we jot down notes and we think about how this can impact us and how we're understanding the gospel more. And I hope that is the case. But I can almost guarantee 
that probably about every one of us in here has some friends who are Catholic, has a background that was Catholic, has folks that are in and out of churches that use some form or fashion of a priest. It's my prayer that a group like us wouldn't just get together and, and say, like Pharisees, man, I'm glad I don't have that background, or I'm glad I'm not in that anymore. Stinks for those who are. But that we would be a group that when we leave here tonight, that we pray sincerely that as we understand how Jesus is the great high priest and that we don't need priests anymore. Matter of fact, we know they steal glory from God and what Jesus has done as the great high priest, that we would be able to reach out with gentle and sincere hearts and be able to minister to those who are under the deception of priests on earth, temples and tabernacles on earth. I think a group like this should be able to come back and have some God stories about how, how we, we talked to someone and just started a conversation you don't have to condemn them. You don't have to crush their spirit. You don't have to be self-righteous. Please don't be any of those. But you can start a conversation. The book of Hebrews is huge for anyone, but anyone who comes from that background. Just start a conversation. See what God does. And remember, how you do something sometimes is just as important as to what you're saying. Last but not least, last two verses. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Last thing we see is the consummation. The second coming of Christ. These two verses are huge. I remember when we were filming a, a baptism testimony for a little girl, I asked her the question, this was just a couple months ago, what do you love most about Jesus? What do you look forward to the most about your relationship with Jesus? It was a little girl. She said that he's coming back. I thought, what? What do you, what do you, what do you know about him coming back? And then the Spirit, speaking to me, was saying, what do you know about it? <laughs> Why is she more excited than you? Sometimes it's easy when you know those believers in the church that they're always talking about, oh, Jesus, come back. My kids are 8 and 10, and they're going to be teenagers. Oh, Jesus, come back before they're teenagers. I mean, just we joke about that stuff, and we kind of think, oh, y'all are weird that you want Jesus to come back so much. He says those who eagerly wait for him. Second coming is a big deal. The truth is packed in here, and we'll make this very quick, but it says that we are appointed for man to die once. That means there is an appointment. This is not something that can change, but for those who have any inclination to believe in reincarnation or any kind uh, of Buddhist or Hindu type of belief of the afterlife and being born again and all that stuff, it says very clearly, according to Scripture, man will die once. And after that comes the second life? No. Comes judgment. And part of that judgment is not, would you like to do this again? This also puts to sleep, pun intended, the idea of soul sleep, 
or an intermediate state of being after death. That somehow we're going to die and then we're going to be in an essentially holding cell for a later date. Paul says, to be away from this body is to be present with the Lord. Judgment is immediately. So it says then that Jesus is coming back a second time. But isn't this, isn't this interesting? Not to deal with sin, right? Because he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He doesn't need to, there's no more ways to deal with it. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, your first thought might be, well, why in the world is it, like if he's going to save us when he comes back, what if I die before he comes back? Or, I mean, what about those who are already dead? Well, this we see in verses 24 through 28, three times the word appear shows up. And it actually is a great example of the three different tenses of salvation that we see in Scripture. When we studied Philippians a few months back, we talked about this on a couple occasions. But we see the Word of God tells us that we have been saved, speaking of past tense. We are being saved and working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like there's a, there's a present tense and then there's a future tense on the day of salvation. So three different ways. Does it mean you should be insecure? Absolutely not. But it shows that there, there is sins that ha- have been in our life that we are clean of. And, and as we walk uh, now as believers in the present tense, so there's the past tense of, uh, of sin being paid for by Jesus. And currently, um, when we make mistakes, Jesus not only pays for those, but he makes it to where we don't have to be slaves to sin. So we, right now, presently can be free from sin in Christ. And then future-wise, in heaven, we will be in a place where there will be no more sin. No opportunity for it. And so it says that he's going to save those. You, we, we talk about covenants. Uh, you think about marriage. And this might sound odd, but you, you think about the covenant of marriage. If two people stand up there and, and they give this covenant, these vows between each other, it's a beautiful thing. It's a spiritual thing. But is it just spiritual? Is marriage just spiritual? No, there, there's a part that most people look forward to. I don't need to go into detail as to what that is, but it's what we would call the consummation. And so spiritually, we know we're saved, and it's going to be awesome. If we die before Jesus comes back, we're going to see him, and it's going to be amazing. But if he comes back, and this is why we eagerly wait for it, if he comes back, he is showing us the physical consummation of a spiritual reality that we've been living in and waiting for, and it is going to be beautiful. And that's why we look forward to the second coming. And if we're wondering why he didn't come in, it shows the amazingness of God that he has incredible patience for us and Israel, that he has patience for mankind, that none should perish, that he is giving us every opportunity. But as we know right now, as he intercedes for us, as he intercedes in these verses, it says that he appeared to put away sin, the past tense. It says he is appearing right now, interceding for us in heaven, and he will appear, future tense. So right now, you can have hope and faith that he has not forgotten you, that he is interceding at the right hand of the Father, that there is nothing happening in your world that he doesn't know about, and that you can rest, because if you experience unrest in any of your circumstances here on earth, it is settled in heaven. And that should be a great hope. I don't know what you do with this this week. I trust God's spirit in that. But when we read through these verses, 
about a death and a will and blood and a second coming. And sometimes when we're at home and just spending time with God, this stuff doesn't seem to make much sense to us. But the more we dig into God's word, the stuff that once seemed crazy now is life-giving. 